Good morning. The never-ending encouragement of judges. Gideon is a really, really difficult character in the Bible. When I was in seminary, I did one of my exegetical papers on Gideon, and he's just as complex to me now as he was to me then. And so I have decided to read that exegetical paper word for word this morning (laughs) to you. We will be out of here by four, but you should be asleep in no time, so it'll go fast. So, but when you read Gideon's story, it's it challenges how you read the Bible. It challenges your interpretive lens and your interpretive chops. Because on one hand, his story makes it really, really easy to settle for superficial interpretations. So for instance, we see God call Gideon. Gideon is reluctant. And he says, I'm the smallest member of the smallest clan of the smallest tribe in Israel. And then we see him go on to defeat an army with 300 men. And then we read that lens into all of the stories. We read it through a modern American lens where we love a really good underdog story that begins with that reluctant leader. And we build a whole sermon series On that view, looking at Judges, where we ask the question each and every week, see what God can do through you if you just step out in faith. I'm sure that might get everybody fired up. And then we go out and make a bunch of bad life decisions. Because it completely misses the point. Because how do you reconcile that with Judges 2 that says this whole thing is a downward spiral. To have that interpretation is to be a slave to the very spiritual condition that caused this downward spiral. Getting is challenging because he, his story requires us to look beneath the surface and to discover that he's not so virtuous or exemplary Or heroic. Gideon actually marks a turning point in the Bible. And it's a really big turning point. Because up until now, Israel has had five leaders. Moses, Joshua, Othniel, Ehud, and Deborah. And each of them are presented in a positive light. Where they were used by God to deliver Israel from her oppressors. But then we get to Gideon. And a new question rises to the surface. What happens when Israel needs to be rescued from her own leaders? And when we began this series two weeks ago, we looked at how Judges 2 gives us an overview for the whole book. And it tells us exactly how Israel fell apart. They laid aside God's mission because they wanted to be a comfortable people. They did not want to be a consecrated people devoted to the Lord. And Gideon is no different. Even though we see him doing righteous acts on the outside, we are left to question what's his real motivation on the inside. Yes, Gideon does what the Lord asks him to do. 
but not why the Lord asked him to do it. And when you read his story, there's a dissonance in Gideon's story I think we can all relate with. Because Gideon is just constantly out of sync with God. Every step of the way, he gets so close, and yet he's so far away at the same exact time. And he never gets to this point where he is on the same page. And Gideon shows us how we can interact with the things of God, but underneath all of it, we're actually motivated by our own desire for comfort. We're not motivated by our desire to consecrate ourselves to the Lord. And so what can we learn from Gideon's story today? Well, do you ever feel like you just keep missing God? He just seems so close and yet so far away at the exact same time. And you just constantly feel like you're constantly out of sync with him because it feels like there's just constantly something in the way and you can't see it. If you're willing to look, Gideon shows us that deep, deep, deep within us, buried underneath all of our motives, and buried underneath our desire for comfort is an altar. And on top of that altar is an idol, black as pitch. And it's the last idol that must be torn down. It's the idol of self. And I get it. We're Christians, right? So there's a part of us that's just part of the, what you do. We admit wrongdoing. But we're reluctant to see it as worship of self. We're reluctant to see it as worship of self because that just sounds so, like, icky and narcissistic. Like, that's true of other people, not us. My issues aren't that bad. And we hate to think that that could be true of us, and yet Gideon shows us exactly what it looks like. And he shows us exactly how idolatry and worship of self truly operates. And to see it, we have to look at the entirety of Gideon's story. We can't just look at one part and move on. We have to see his whole character arc. And we're going to look at it this morning through three different scenes in his story. And as we do, as we go along, we're going to stop along the way and we're going to see if what we see in his story doesn't tell us something about us. As we follow Gideon, I'm going to invite you to see Gideon in yourself and to see yourself in Gideon. And so scene one is Gideon's call. Scene two is Gideon's fleece. And scene three is Gideon's ephod. And so scene one, Gideon's call. Well, after Deborah and Barak die, the downward spiral continues. Israel falls back into worship of Baal. And so because of that, God allowed the Midianites to rise up and to oppress Israel for seven years. 
Every year, the Midianites would come from the east and they would raid Israel during the harvest, steal all of their crops, and they laid a heavy, heavy hand on the Israelites. And the Israelites are so afraid at this point, seven years in, that they're now living in caves whenever the Midianites come around. And now the Midianites have returned and they are assembling at the border of Israel. And it's right here that God sends a prophet. And that prophet says, Thus says the Lord, I led you up from Egypt. I delivered you from slavery and from the hand of all who oppressed you and gave you their land. And I told you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not listened to my voice. And that's it. That is the message. God tells the people, just so we're clear, I want you to remember exactly why all of this is happening to you. And then the Lord appears to Gideon, who was hiding from the Midianites. And God says, the Lord is with you, almighty man of valor. And listen to Gideon's response. If the Lord is with us, why is all of this happening to us? Where are all of his wonderful deeds we were told about? The Lord has forsaken us. Now just think about Gideon's response in light of what God just said through the prophet. Doesn't he already seem so out of sync with God? Why? It's because Gideon, yes, he laments his own situation and everything that's going on in his suffering. But he gives no thought to his own sin being a contributing factor. He doesn't see his own choices and decisions and that of his people that he has agreed with and gone along with that have helped get them to where they are. Instead, he does what? He blames God. God has abandoned us. God has forsaken us. And here's the irony. Gideon says all of this while he's literally standing in the shadow of an altar to Baal that's in his own backyard. He can't see it. And so what does this teach us about the idol of self? Well, very simply, we don't see God because we're unwilling to see ourselves. And the idol of self does everything it can to keep you from admitting that it even exists in the first place. And so we can look at our circumstances and the frustrations in life and we don't see how our own sin has contributed and our own brokenness has brought us to that point. We kind of just trim off all of the decisions and choices that we've made along the way and the ways that we have chosen to live that have brought us exactly to where we are and instead we can blame God. God, where are you? God, why haven't you fixed this? Why don't you care? Why are you distant? And all the while, we overlook those altars in our own backyard. We place the blame elsewhere on God 
and on others. It's God. It's not Gideon. It's all those Midianites out there. It's not me. It's my spouse. Not my lusts or fear of intimacy or addiction that has driven them away. It's my kids. It's not my impatience or my unseen rage or commitment to my own personal time. It's all those other people. It's not my own undealt with issues or insecurities or my judgmental spirit. It's all my frustrating coworkers. Not my endless need for approval from my boss or the fact that I've attached my identity to my income or the fact that I just had to have that promotion. And just like Gideon, we evaluate our life and all those circumstances as though we are just helpless victims of a distant God and broken people. And we can act like God has forsaken us. And we completely overlook the fact that it's we who have forsaken him. But God is gracious to Gideon. He's extraordinarily patient with him. He calls Gideon to rise up and to face the Midianites, but the first thing that he has Gideon do is tear down that altar to Baal in his backyard and build an altar to the Lord. God is giving Gideon the opportunity to repent. This is literally just a picture in historical form of what repentance is, the tearing down of an altar and replacing it with a true altar unto the Lord. And God is giving Gideon the opportunity to repent and to change the whole course of his life by changing what is at the very center of his life. And he's leading Gideon down this road of consecration step by step. And that first step that he has him take is he says, how about we clean up everything in here before we start focusing on cleaning up everything out here? How about we worry about you? But Gideon's response leaves us to question his commitment to the Lord. He tears down the altar at night because he's afraid of the townspeople and what they'll think. And so, yes, he does it, but does doing it actually do anything to him? It says nothing of him repenting and realizing what he's done and reestablishing the Lord at the center of his life. He's ultimately not concerned about the reputation of the Lord. What he's concerned about is his own reputation and how this will affect his place and standing in the community and in the eyes of others. And so, yes, Gideon builds an altar to the Lord, but he worships at the altar of self. How easy for us to do righteous things on the outside with all the wrong motives on the inside. I know none of us here struggle with that, but there are people in churches elsewhere that do. We can do righteous things. We can say righteous things, serve in righteous ways, participate, and it all looks great on the outside, but underneath it all, it's not really about God's place in our lives. It's about our place in the, in the eyes of others. Because the idol of self hungers and thirsts for approval and affirmation from others. 
So Gideon, here we are. Gideon can't see his own sin. He's focused on the opinion of others. But God is still gracious to him. It says that he clothes Gideon with his spirit. And he gathers the tribes of Israel. He blows the trumpet and he gathers the tribes of Manasseh and Asher and Zebulun and Naphtali to face the Midianites. They hear the call and they answer it and they rally to him. Which brings us to scene two. Gideon's fleece on the eve of battle with the Midianites. Gideon says to God, If indeed you will save Israel by my hand, then in the morning this fleece I lay out will be wet with dew, but the ground around it will be dry. Then I will know you will save Israel by my hand. And then when that happens, Gideon comes back a second time, and he asks God to flip it. Do it again, but this time make the fleece dry and the ground around it wet. Now perhaps you've heard this story used as a way of understanding and discerning God's will. It's a common interpretation. It is patently wrong. This is not about discerning God's will. Why? Because Gideon knows exactly what God's will is. God literally showed up and told him exactly what to do face to face. Okay, there is no ambiguity. The fleece is not about discernment. Or maybe you've heard that this is about, you know, just Gideon struggling with doubt and just wanting a little bit of reassurance. That's not it either. God has zero problems with doubt. Doubt is all over the Bible. It's all over this church. If you have doubts, you, friend, are welcome here. But this fleece is not about discernment. It is not about doubt. This fleece is about Gideon's distrust. Because look at what he actually says. He says, if you will save Israel by my hand. So he already knows exactly what he's supposed to be doing. He says, give me this sign of this fleece. And then he asks God to do it so that I will know that you will save Israel by my hand. Gideon asks for the sign of this fleece. Why? It's because he wants assurances before he's willing to be obedient. He's wanting guarantees that this is going to work out well for him before he's actually willing to be faithful. And if you actually go a little bit further, what makes this so dangerous? Signs are asked for in the Bible that God gives. What makes this one dangerous is that if you look a little bit more deeply at what is going on, Gideon is pitting God against Baal. That's what this fleece is about. Dew is a symbol of blessing in an ancient agrarian society, even in the Bible. And remember that Baal is the storm god. He's the god of the rains. He's the god of precipitation. He's the god of dew. And so it's a subtle challenge before I do this, I just want to know who's really in charge. You were Baal. Who will really bring blessing? Show me your power first so that I know that I'll be victorious. And then I will do what you ask. 
Gideon is more concerned about the outcome than he is actually walking in obedience. Because just think about the alternative and what we don't see. He doesn't say, I want to be obedient despite the outcome, despite what happens, because I want to be listened. I want to listen and be guided by your voice. And I want to do what it is that you ask me and what is pleasing in your sight. No, instead, he tests God. This fleece is Gideon trying to control the situation and saying, I will be obedient as long as I know that I will come out on top. Why? Because he's committed to the idol of self. Not surrendering his life to the will of his God that asks him to do hard things. Because the idol of self will always stipulate obedience. Now, I highly doubt you have tossed out a fleece in your backyard recently. If you have, I would love to hear about it. But we can but can't we stipulate our obedience all the same all the time? Where our obedience is contingent upon the outcomes that we want. So I'll apologize to my spouse if they apologize first. I'll be obedient, but first I want a sign of victory. Why? Because deep down my marriage is not about consecration. It's about control. I'll engage in community and I'll come out of my shell as long as the right people are there. As long as the right people show up, it's people I like. As long as I know I won't be hurt by anybody or disappointed and I'll feel valued the way that I want, I will be obedient as soon as I know that all of this is going to work out for me. Because it's not about consecration. It's really about control. The idol of self says, I'll wait until God can guarantee that my obedience will be the least sacrificial. I'll wait until I know that I will get the outcome that I want. I'll wait until I know that it won't cost me anything. I'll wait until I finally know that God's mission finally lines up with my mission. And we can get completely out of sync with how God works in our lives. We do this in all sorts of ways all the time. And it gets us completely on a different page than God. It gets us completely out of sync with God, even though we do righteous things on the outside. Why? Because God calls us out of comfort and in to consecration. He calls us to walk by faith, to step into the unknown, to die to self, to pick up a cross, to follow him when we do not know the outcomes, not to wait until we do. It's one of the main reasons I have seen and will continue to see why people don't grow. It's because we are so committed to self-preservation and self-protection and self-promotion. And it never gives way to self-sacrifice. This is exactly why Jesus says, if you will lose your life for my sake, you will find it. He's not talking about you losing your life if you go out there somewhere across the ocean and you get martyred for preaching the gospel. 
He's talking about you losing your life each and every day in each and every decision, each of those moments in your parenting, in your marriage, as you relate to everyone and everything around you. All of those moments to crawl on a cross, to die to self and live a life of consecration unto the Lord your God. If you lose your life for my sake, then you will find it. The idol of self hates walking by faith. But the Lord is patient and gracious with Gideon. And he continues to teach him. Tries to teach him to let go of that need for power and control and to walk in faith and obedience into the unknown. So he says, Gideon, your army is way too big. It's way too big for me to give the Midianites into your hand, lest Israel boasts over me and says, my own hand has done it. And right there, that is telling you the whole point of God's engagement in this story. It is about his glory, not Israel's. It's about his glory, not Gideon's. And he's teaching a simple lesson to Gideon to trust in his presence and his power in his life. And so he takes Gideon's army of 32,000 men and pairs it all the way down to 300. The original 300. And the Lord knows Gideon is still afraid. And so he is patient and gracious yet again. So he tells Gideon to sneak down to the Midianite camp and to listen to what it is that they're talking about. And so Gideon sneaks down there with his servant, and he hears two Midianite soldiers talking to each other. And one of them is telling the other about a dream that they had, where they basically saw a big old giant dinner roll, roll down the mountain, and just blow through the Midianite camp. And it decimated them. And the other says, that must mean that Gideon will certainly defeat the Midianites. But then it says this, as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. But in light of everything we've seen so far, I think it begs the question, worshiped what? Worshiped what? Is this a moment of surrender unto the Lord or self-exaltation? Is this finally a moment of Gideon worshiping God in light of all that God has done? Or is this Gideon's worship of self in light of hearing all that he is going to do? Because nowhere in this story has Gideon necessarily worshipped. He built an altar, but he didn't worship. He made a sacrifice, but he didn't worship. But then when he hears a favorable interpretation from a dream where he's the main character of the story, he worships. Worship in its simplest definition is an act of ascribing worth. It's the word worth, ship. And so we worship God in all things, good or bad, because in all things, God is of the most worth. And so when Gideon hears about the dream, whose worth is he really recognizing? Who is he giving the greatest presence and value and honor? The rest of the story actually shows us the answer. Because from here on out, we don't see Gideon being humbled and consecrating his life to the Lord. We actually see Gideon take a really dark turn. 
He goes on a power trip and he exalts himself. And you hear it immediately because he returns to camp and he gives specific instructions to the soldiers. He says, whenever we go down and we surround the camp and we break the lanterns and the fire rages out, I want you to yell for the Lord and for Gideon. For the Lord and for Gideon. Worshiping at the idol of self is dangerous. Because it gives us an unavoidable impulse to try to get others to worship at the same exact altar. And when they don't, we lash out. And we punish. Because worship of self requires sacrifices too. And most often, it's those who are closest to us. Which is exactly what we see at the end of this story in scene three with Gideon's ephod. Despite everything that we've seen, God was still gracious and he used Gideon and these 300 men to defeat the Midianites and to deliver Israel. But afterwards, there were two Midianite kings named Zabah and Zalmunna that escaped. And so Gideon and his 300 men begin to chase them down. And while they're chasing them down, Gideon and his men are just absolutely exhausted. And they pass through two different Israelite cities called Sukkoth and Penuel. And when he gets there, Gideon asks them for, for food. He asks them for bread, for his men, to help refresh them. But the elders of those two cities refuse. Why? They say, are Zabah and Zalmunna in your hand yet? We want to see how things turn out first before we're willing to take a side. Now, absolutely they make a mistake. But that mistake sounds really familiar, doesn't it? They sound like Gideon. They want assurance of victory before they're willing to take a side. And so what does Gideon do? Does he learn from his own experience and say, Brothers, let me be patient and gracious with you the way the Lord has been gracious with me. I thought that same thing. But the Lord is with us. The Lord is with me. Come and let us be a part of what God is doing. No, all Gideon can see is himself. And so he's enraged that they do not worship at the altar of Gideon. They don't worship the same thing he does and recognize his importance. He treats this as an assault on his own personal dignity and value, not on God's. And then he goes on a completely individualistic, petty campaign of personal vengeance. He tells them, when I come back, I'm going to strip your flesh I'm going to whip you with thorns, and I'm going to execute you. And he does. He captures Zabah and Zalmunna, and he returns to Sakath and Penuel, and he takes all of their elders and their men, and he whips them, he humiliates them, and he executes them. Gideon treats his own people more harshly than he treats the Midianites. So who's the real enemy? And what happens when Israel needs to be rescued from her own leaders? Gideon shows us how worship of self makes one completely blind to their own failures and flaws, and yet they have eagle-like 2020 vision of everybody else's flaws. Instead of returning to these villages and saying, Brothers, see, 
The Lord is with us. You're on a dangerous road. Come and consecrate yourself. Let us endeavor in this mission that God has given us and do it together. But no, he makes it about himself and restoring his own fragile sense of wounded pride. And he destroys the very people he's supposed to build up and lead. Because now Gideon's real mission has come to the surface. It's to establish his own glory. And it's to exalt his own name. Because Gideon cares more about the people following him than actually following the Lord. That's why he made his ephod. In his last act, Gideon takes gold from Zabah and Zalmunna, and he requests gold as spoil from the soldiers. And he melted all of that down, and he made an ephod, which was something that the Aaronic priests, the Levite priests, were supposed to wear in their service to God. But this is Gideon making his own golden calf. And he hung this ephod in his house, and it says that all of Israel whored after it there. They committed an act of adultery. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his entire family. The Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle and the, Levi, and the, the, the Levites, the priesthood, were actually located in Shiloh at this time. But instead of pointing God's people to God's presence there, God draw, or Gideon draws all the people unto himself. And that ephod became what people looked to for answers, to listen to Gideon's voice, to trust in his intercession, to trust and seek his presence. And it corrupted the people, it corrupted his family, and it corrupted him. And all the while, it never gives us any indication that he saw it at any point in his entire life. And what a perfect summary to everything that we've seen. Because what is Gideon actually doing? And what is the ultimate end of worship of self? Gideon sets himself up as a rival to the Lord. That ephod became the symbol of his desire for everyone to value his importance and to listen to his voice and to seek his presence because Gideon could not see the true idol. It's that last idol that we all have to face, that idol of self. His story began, yes, with tearing down an altar to Baal, but the one he never torn down in his heart was that last idol of all. The idol of self. And so what are we to do with all this? Well, Gideon's life was about enthroning himself as much as he possibly could. We just have to ask, so how about you? I have to ask, how about me? Do you see Gideon in yourself? Do you see yourself in Gideon? It stings to admit that we might worship at the altar of self And yet Gideon shows us how simple it actually is and what it actually looks like. How subtle and deceptive and how damaging it all is in the end. Are you blind to your own sin and your own failures? But you see the sin of others 20-20. Do you stipulate your obedience based on your own convenience? Is your life and your marriage and your parenting and just kind of everything in life just about this tug of war of trying to get others to see your value, the importance of listening to your voice and offering you the validation you crave? 
And when you don't get it, you lash out, you kill in your heart, you act in rage, you manipulate and pout and punish. Friends, those are all the stones that build the altar to self. Those are the stones that lift the idol of self high for all to see. We're given this story because we are all Gideon. And Gideon is all of us. It's why we make for bad judges. It's why we make for bad saviors. We need a different kind of judge. You need one who also came from humble beginnings, born into a no-name family in a no-name town, but his life was never out of sync with the Lord God. Because he was called by God and he fully consecrated himself to that mission. He was clothed in the power of the Spirit and he called and he gathered and he invited others to join him. He was patient and he was gracious to all their missteps and all their ambivalence along the way. But at the end, when it mattered most, as he went to war with the enemy, he too was abandoned. But he was abandoned by everybody. And he had to go fight on his own, all by himself. But instead of punishing all of them, he was whipped. He was humiliated. He was executed for them. But this judge comes back. This judge comes back too. And when he does, he invites all of those people who abandoned him to still join him in mission. To come and be on mission with him. But joining that mission, make no mistake, it begins the same exact way that this story began. It begins with repentance. And I invite you to start there. To go back and start where this story starts and ask yourself the question, what idols exist in my own backyard that I've just learned to overlook and I can't see anymore? What addictions and what priorities and what Behavior patterns have I just learned to live with that cause so much destruction around me that in the end are just all the same and yet different expressions of my commitment to self. I end with a challenge to practice repentance every single day. And I know that repentance for some, like we hear that and it just doesn't seem extraordinary and yet we have no idea how extraordinary it is. And by repentance, I don't just mean confession every day where we say, yes, God, I messed up, would you forgive me? Repentance goes so much deeper. Repentance wants so much more. Repentance doesn't just want forgiveness, it wants the forgiver. Repentance is going to God each and every day and saying, Jesus, Rearrange my life today. I need you to come in and give me eyes to see what I can't see. Help me see the sin that I completely overlook. Help me see the sin that's always been there, but I just happen to gaze across. The sin that I don't want to admit is doing all sorts of damage in my life to me and to those around me. Help me see that damage. Help me see what I'm doing. Help me see what I'm not doing. Help me see what I'm not even aware of, change me. Because I don't see what needs to change. I challenge you to pray that every single day. 
Why? Because you worship something every single day. And that's a prayer that begins to leave comfort behind. That's a prayer where consecration begins. That's a prayer that will make you lose your life so that you find it. For the glory of Christ and the life of the world, let's pray. Lord Jesus, I ask that you would draw near to us. That you'd give us eyes to see what we don't want to see. And you would give us the courage to consecrate our lives, body, and soul to you. Give us new desires, new willingness that we just cannot create in and of ourselves. We need your grace in these things and we ask that we would taste it and see it and receive it at this table. We ask all this in your name. Amen.